want to start off by mentioning a few names. Archie Manning, Peyton Manning, and Arch Manning. They aren't in a direct line of succession, but they are three generations of Mannings who play quarterback. We don't know quite how the last generation will pan out. He made some questionable decisions about his choice of education, but we will see. The same could be said for LeBron James and his son, Bronny. People see potential in the son, but only time will tell if he can live up to the reputation of his father's basketball greatness. In baseball, Ken Griffey's case, uh, he was a good player, but it's fair to say that his son, Ken Griffey Jr., outstripped his dad. He's in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, it doesn't always play out this way in the case of these athletic fathers and sons, but it's something that we all recognize, that fathers, uh, sons resemble their fathers in remarkable ways. And the way the son acts inevitably reflects on his father and, and, all, and all of his family, his parents. So in Proverbs, Solomon teaches us that a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. You could say that the question of the passage we're going to look at this morning is, will we make our father glad? Will we live out our identity as children of God and love people the way that God loves? Or will we be marked by some lesser kind of love? This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, and we're continuing to walk through Jesus' teaching here in this chapter, which kind of parallels Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. We began last Sunday by looking at the collection of blessings and curses that begin the chapter, or blessings and woes, in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. In those verses, Jesus was preparing us to be treated like Jesus. He is opposed by the religious leaders. He will ultimately be crucified because of his faithfulness to God. And Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared, to be opposed, slandered, perhaps even hated and killed for his sake. Jesus taught us that we should rejoice when we face persecution for his sake. And so now that he's prepared us for this opposition, he continues teaching us by teaching us how we should respond to those who persecute us. So he says we should not only rejoice when we're mistreated the way that Jesus was, but that we should love the ones who mistreat us. He commands us to do good when people hate us. In these commands, Jesus defines the character of Christian love. And here is its essence. Christians love and expect nothing in return. What's more, when Christians are hated, our response to being hated and hurt is to keep loving. As Jesus puts it in verse 29, from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So Christian love piles up undeserved love upon undeserved love. 
life in the kingdom of God is to be characterized by this unusual kind of love. In the verses we read, Jesus is making an argument in this passage about what Christian love is and where it comes from. And so this morning we're going to do our best to follow the steps of Jesus' argument. And here's what we see. First, Christian love expects nothing in return. Second, worldly love is transactional. Third, Christian love is grounded in faith. So here are those steps in the argument again. Christian love expects nothing in return. Worldly love is transactional. And Christian love is grounded in faith. Let's start by reading this entire passage. And then we'll take a a look at that first step in Jesus' argument. So we're going to read Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, down through verse 38. Listen to God's word. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. One of the similarities between this passage and last week's is that we see that life in God's kingdom goes against our natural inclinations. We'll talk about this further in our second point, but it's worth saying now is also, the normal way humans love is in a, a tit-for-tat kind of way. Right? It's an I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, or what have you done for me lately kind of love. That's the kind of things our natural love says. Our natural love has strict limits on how much we will give before we pull away. Our natural instincts tell us there are all kinds of problems with what Jesus is commanding in this unusual kind of love. But before we look more closely at what Jesus is saying, I want us to first look at a couple of things he's not saying love is. So Jesus is not talking about romantic love or Love as a feeling. So kids, you hear me talking about love and you're worried I'm talking about, you know, gross, the prince and princess kissing kind of love. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. 
you might think, kids, of the kind of love you have when you, you see a friend hurting at school and you, you choose to help them. Maybe you see other kids piling on it and you come to their defense. Or maybe the kind of love that you see your parents showing you, where they commit to caring for you each day. It's, it's that kind of love. Or the kind of love perhaps you've seen your grandfather show to your grandmother as she's sick, or, or vice versa. It's, it's the way that we treat other people. That's what we mean by love. And Jesus especially is talking about the way Christians should treat others when those others mistreat us. That's the kind of love we're talking about. The second thing that we don't find here is we don't find an exhaustive ethical code for every situation that we'll encounter. What we see Jesus doing here is using extreme language to make a point. Well, the fact that it's extreme doesn't mean it's, it's not true. It simply means we need wisdom to know how to apply what he's saying. So I want to give us two examples to show what I mean. Jesus commands us to give to everyone who begs from you. We need wisdom on how to follow this command. And I can't drive home without passing people at Spring Cypress and 249 who are begging, right, with a sign. And likely you have a similar route that you drive every time you see someone begging. So what should we do? Well, just to look at one example of a time when someone was begging in the Bible, we find in Acts 3, as Peter and James and John were going to the temple, that there was a, a beggar there. He was looking to receive alms. And he, he looked up at Peter, seemingly implying in his look the, the question, will you give me some money? And Peter didn't ignore him. right? Maybe that's your strategy sometimes and my strategy. We just tried not to see the guy. Peter says, no, look at me. And he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now it's notable, I mean there's lots of things notable, right? Things that we can't imitate. But it's notable that Peter and John did not give the man what he asked for. It may be the case that our most helpful gift, the thing that we can give someone, is, is not what they're asking for, but, but something else. And so we'll need wisdom from God to know the motives of our own heart when we're tempted not to give or to look away. And we need wisdom from God to know what's the best way to help in a given situation. So that's one example, that we need wisdom on how to apply Jesus' commands. Another example that shows how wisdom is needed is his command to pray for those who abuse you. When we use the word abuse in our culture, we use it to refer to some kind of criminal neglect or violence, usually by someone in authority against someone who they're in charge of. If we take Jesus' command here to mean that the only Christian response to that kind of abuse is, is to pray for the abuser, then we've committed a serious error in our interpretation and application. So in addition to, to love, we should bring other scriptural categories to bear on that kind of situation. Categories like justice and, and love for the person who is victimized. A Christian love for the abuser would say that they need to face the consequences of their crime. And we have to admit that there have been many cases where Christians have told abuse victims to merely forgive and forget. To be quiet about the crimes that they suffered and not to cause trouble. So we need to see that's a, that's a wrong and foolish way to apply Jesus' teaching about love. Jesus has more to say about responding to abuse than simply pray for the abuser. 
one principle that arises out of these complicated scenarios that I've mentioned is that these commands make more sense when the persecution or harm is against yourself and and you only, or not against someone that you're called to protect. So if my goods are confiscated because I'm a Christian, I'm called by Christ not to demand them back here. But if my unsaved neighbor's house is robbed by petty thieves, I'm not free to tell my unsaved neighbor, well, you just have to be happy about it, right? My love for him constrains me to to maybe help him get his things back or at least to be happy to pay the taxes that fund the police and the laws that, that prosecute criminals, right? If several of us are arrested and beaten because we, we serve Christ, we're constrained by, by Christ's command here not to resist or fight back. But if our neighbor is beaten and robbed by a group of thugs, we should seek justice for him. If our child is threatened in a home invasion, we should protect our child. So Jesus' teachings here don't address every ethical situation. His teachings here don't give us the full prescription we need for our law codes. And his teachings don't mean that criminals should run free without consequences. But his teachings do show us what the posture of our hearts should be when we are attacked for his sake. In those cases, Jesus' teaching shows us our ambition is not to first protect ourselves. Our ambition is to glorify the name of Christ. It's important to state these complications up front because I want us now to be free to hear the brunt, the full force of what Jesus has to say about love. We need to see that it is a radical, supernatural kind of love. It's worth noting and just listing all the commands, all the imperative verbs that are in these verses. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Offer the other cheek to someone who strikes you. Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not demand back goods from those who steal from you. So these are the commands of Christ our King. These are not optional things for disciples of Jesus. This is what our Lord demands of us. His his commands exclude both external, visible actions like giving money or possessions to those in need, And his commands address what we might think of as the the private area of our hearts, right? To, To bless those who curse us. To pray for those who abuse us. All of this is included in what Jesus means by love. With the private orientation, the secret things of your heart, and the public actions you take toward them. He makes it clear that this love expects nothing in return. So Jesus doesn't recommend this strategy to his church as a a way to gain friends and influence people. It's the love that Jesus showed as he went to the cross. Megan read for us earlier from 1 Peter 2.23 that when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Christ is commending his own kind of love. Jesus would have us wrestle with, how do I respond when I hear the radical nature of Christ's love? Is it the natural response for you to just think of all the exceptions? Well, that that may be wise in some ways. 
Perhaps you think, well, surely he doesn't mean to do that in my situation. Maybe you're right. It's wise to seek counsel from godly Christians, people who love you, when you're facing a difficult situation. It's possible that you're right, that there are some exigency that you're facing that, that should change the course of how you respond. But we should recognize that it's possible to be right and wrong at the same time. So you may rightly say about the, the person in your life who is hurting you in some way that this person needs to change. They need to be held accountable. They need to be called to repent. You may be right about that while wrongly harboring hatred for them in your heart. While wrongly refusing to bless those who curse you. The question is, are you seeking repentance when your instincts are to fight cursing with cursing? Jesus commands us to pray for those who abuse us. If you want to know some of the way Jesus teaches us to pray, well, here's part of it. Pray for those who hurt you. Even in a case where we might rightly work to see an abuser caught and brought to justice, Jesus still calls us to pray that person. So we should ask at this first point, am I willing to submit to Jesus's definition of love? To love my enemies. Christian love expects nothing in return. Well, if that's what Christian love is, then what other kinds of love are there? That's where Jesus goes next. That's the next step of his argument. Let me read verses 31 through 34 again. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So in verse 32, Jesus begins describing the kind of love that even sinners have. He uses that same phrase three times. Even sinners love those who love them. By sinners, Jesus is describing human beings in our fallen state. He's describing the kind of love that's natural to all people after Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And we see this kind of love is transactional love. It's love in exchange, it's the exchange of favors. Apparently this is very common in the Roman world, that it was just kind of a tangle of favors. You do me a favor, I do you a favor. So it's the kind of love that leads us to say things like, well, I guess since they sent us a Christmas card, we better put them on our Christmas card list. Or it's the kind of love that your coworker says or shows when they say, sure, I'll cover, cover your shift now, but you have to close for me this Friday night. Right, that, that kind of love is common in the world. It, it's not bad. It, in some ways, it's the fabric that holds society together. But we see that worldly love is transactional. But this raises the question, where does the golden rule fit into this, right? Between Jesus' command to love our enemies and his description of this worldly love, he, he gives the command that's commonly called the golden rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Is this transactional love? It almost sounds like it. But know that Jesus does not say here, here's a trick to get people to treat you well. Be kind to them. He does not say that. 
Rather, Jesus' version of the golden rule is, a, is another way of saying the biblical command to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a call to remember that the people around you and me are people made in the image of God. They're going to have the same needs and desires and the same dignity that we have. And so we should treat them that way. How do you want to be treated? Treat other people the same. But this rule doesn't guarantee that you'll be treated well. Again, it's not a strategy. And in the context of verses 27 through 30, we might put teaching, Jesus' teaching like this. The golden rule applies even to the way you treat your enemies. So verse 31 is looking backward to Jesus' command to love our enemies, and it's kind of a pivot forward to Jesus' description of the transactional love that sinners have. But again, Jesus' rule is not a means to an end. It's not a way to get ahead in the world. It's simply the love that should be normal for someone who calls himself a disciple. Disciples treat other people with the dignity they deserve as people made in the image of God. When Jesus does turn to describe worldly love, he gives three examples of transactional love, and each time he asks the same question. What benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? If, if you love those who love you, if you, if you give a loan to someone who you expect to pay you back, or if you help someone who's going to help you in your career, what credit is that to you? And the implied answer is that it's no credit at all. It does not commend a disciple of Jesus to love others with that kind of love. Now again, he doesn't say that that love is evil or bad. God uses it for good in the world. But he is saying that that kind of love does not demonstrate any grace of God in our hearts. When we love like the world loves, it doesn't prove that we belong to Jesus. I think it's appropriate that to expand further on Jesus' examples. Think about the kind of love we have for people who are exactly the same as us. Perhaps people of the same ethnicity or people of the same socioeconomic class or people who like the same movies or the same, same sports or the same kinds of food who, who share a lot of interests that we have. When we love those people, it's no credit to us as disciples. And the world is full of examples of people who enjoy spending time with others who, who share their interests. Perhaps it's a little harsh to call those relationships transactional, but they're maybe mutually beneficial. They're, they're self-reinforcing. Again, these relationships shouldn't be condemned. They might be an avenue that God uses for you to share the gospel with unsaved people. So they can be put to good, good use. You might be the, the dad who likes to hang out with the other dads who help with the baseball team, right? There's a mutual enjoyment of helping kids learn baseball. Or, or you might share common cause and even a lot of common convictions with, children, with parents at your kid's school, right? You're, you're united for this good thing. But we should see you don't need the gospel for that common cause. That relationship evidences no supernatural love, the love that only the gospel can produce. And it's worth noting this because we have to be wary in a church of allowing our unity to be centered around some kind of natural affinity. We need to acknowledge there could be real dangers for us here. 
It might feel very comfortable to be in a church where the people in the church share everything in common with you. But it also might obscure the gospel. We might be prone to think that relationships in the church should be easy and there should be no awkwardness. But what if relational awkwardness is a sign that what binds us together is Jesus, the fact that Christ has saved us, and not the fact that we're just naturally friends with each other? If everything is easy because we just naturally get along, Jesus would ask us, what credit is that to you? How does that demonstrate your faith in Jesus that you show up there? Even sinners join groups like that. One way we've tried to build this kind of unity is by having a statement of faith. So we just, the elders have just finished going through the statement of faith with Mark as he pursues baptism and membership. So Mark Williamson here in the third row. And we've been talking about how the statement of faith is a, a center of our unity. The statement of faith is a way we show our agreement on the doctrines, the truth about God that binds us together. Our unity is grounded in the fact that we submit to scripture, the scriptures as God's authoritative, inerrant word. Our unity is grounded in the fact that we share faith in Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the all-sufficient Savior. Our statement of faith states our belief about baptism because a church will have to make a choice about who to baptize or not. These things all help preserve our unity. But our statement also preserves our unity by leaving a lot of things out. So our statement of faith is silent about whether you should be premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial in your views of when Jesus will come back and how all that will work. Our statement of faith says nothing about what you must believe about global warming or taxation levels or foreign policy. It clearly states our belief that life begins at conception in the womb, but it doesn't mandate a certain set of actions that every Christian must take to fight for the unborn. So by, by eliminating these things from our statement, we're, we're trying to recognize genuine Christians can join our church agreeing on the gospel and the things in our statement, but maybe not agreeing on what they think the size of government should be or the best cultural or legal strategy for fighting abortion. And the reason I'm drawing attention to those potential differences is to show the kind of unity we're pursuing. We want to be a church where we can be united together with other Christians around the gospel while disagreeing on things that are important but not essential for our unity. And that's what we are trying to recover in a sense. There's a whole category of things that are important but not essential for our unity. We want to be a church where God's supernatural work, the work of his spirit, is the only explanation for our unity. That we're bound here together because we know God's word is the word of life and it has given life to our souls. He has given us life through it. We want to be united here together because Jesus has saved us. We want to be united here together confessing that we are great sinners, but his mercy is more. So here are a couple of good questions to help you examine your love and your relationship in the church. I got these from Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop's book called Compelling Community. They asked these two questions, or three questions. 
What do you talk about with other church members outside of church? To what extent do casual conversations differ from what you'd expect to hear in a local bar, neighborhood picnic, or little league game? We want our conversations to be different. Secondly, how many of your friendships at church would likely exist even if you weren't a Christian? Now, not to condemn you for having those kinds of relationships, but to encourage you to seek those kinds of friendships with people that you wouldn't naturally be friends with in the church for the sake of the gospel around Christ. We don't want to be a church to whom Jesus says, even sinners have that kind of love. We don't want to hear Christ say to us, your unity is of no benefit to you. So if we don't want to be that kind of church, what should we do? Well, the answer is not to look into ourselves and try really hard to do better. The answer is to look to God himself. And that's where Jesus takes us in the final step of his argument. Christian love is grounded in faith. Let's read verses 35 through 38. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. These last four verses are once again full of commands, imperative verbs, but they're not only commands. Jesus reveals the foundation for Christian love. We can put it in the words of 1 John 4, 19. We love because God first loved us. And verses 35 and 36 are the crux of the argument. We see these these commands, love your enemies, do good, and lend, with the promise, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If we look closely at these verses, we see Jesus says several things in a very dense sentence. And while he doesn't use the word faith, he fixes our eyes on the promises of God and his character. We see first that Jesus commands us to love expecting nothing in return, but for the sake of a great reward. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Don't expect anything in return, but expect a reward. Well, to understand what Jesus means, we have to remember back to what he said about the love that even sinners have. Right? He said they love expecting a reward or a repayment from the person that they're loving. They expect them to be to be paid back for their love by the person they're serving. But that's not how Christians love. We don't love others to seek repayment from them. Instead, Jesus commands us to love by trusting that God will reward us. That's the, that's the kind of transactional nature, if you will, right? Dad loves me, and Dad is rewarded not by me, but by God. This is why we can lay down our lives for others, expecting nothing in return, because we have faith in God's promised reward. Well, that sounds good, but it leaves us wondering, what is this reward? 
at first glance, it may appear that Jesus doesn't tell us what the reward is. But let me read for you all the things that he says in this passage that we will receive. He says in verse 35, you will be sons of the Most High. In verse 36, your Father is merciful, implying that we will receive mercy. And then in verse 37, he lists three things. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned. You will be forgiven. Now, what do those things sound like? Mercy, forgiveness, no condemnation, adoption as sons of God. These are all the blessings of the gospel, right? John chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that to all who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reward Jesus describes in Luke 6 is the reward of being saved by Christ's blood and being adopted into God's family. In verse 38, Jesus commands, Give, and it will be given to you. And then he uses this strange collection of expressions. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. This picture is like going to the ice cream shop and you get the, the really generous dipper. And he's really working that ice cream. He's pounding it into that cone and he just keeps going, you know, and you only ordered a single dip, but it's just this huge pile of ice cream. When you put all these things together, we get the picture of a God who is abundant in his saving grace. He is full of mercy. He's kind to sinners. Jesus grounds his commands to love in this promise of abundant mercy and grace from the God who he says is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Jesus has just been commanding love of enemies, this love that expects nothing in return. And finally he lays open, well, this is where the source of that love is. It's not a love you're going to find anywhere in the world. It's God's love. It's divine. It's supernatural. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is the one who is merciful to his enemies. God gives and expects nothing in return because we have nothing to give him. Jesus commands his disciples to expect nothing in return for their love because they've come to know this God. They've come to know and worship and have fellowship with him. And this is not something that we come to know in theory as an academic fact, like 2 plus 2 plus 4. We love because we've come to believe that the God who loves evil people has set his love on us. So we've come to see that in God's eyes, we are ungrateful, or we were ungrateful and evil, and yet God was merciful to us. We see in Scripture that the only kind of repayment we deserve from God is judgment and death. Right? The only appropriate wages for sin is death. That's from Romans chapter 6. But through Christ's work on the cross, we can receive mercy from God instead of wrath. Instead of being repaid according to what we deserve, we're paid according to God's abundant mercy and grace. 
And the wonder of the gospel is that God is able to be kind to the evil because Christ suffered as if he were evil, even though he was perfectly good. God is not kind because he merely chooses to overlook sin or pretend it's no big deal. If God were to do that, he would be sinning against his own righteousness and justice. The good news of the gospel is that God's mercy is righteous mercy. He's merciful to us through Jesus. Jesus endured the wrath of God that we sinners deserve. And so by faith in Jesus, we receive mercy and love from God. And remember how much mercy. It's more mercy. It's abundant mercy. It's the pressed down, shaken together, running over mercy of God that God pours into our laps. God's mercy is abundant and overflowing, and there's no danger that we'll ever exhaust it. We're only able to love God and to love others with God's love to the extent that we've come to know his love for us. So, brothers and sisters, do you know God's love for you? Do you meditate on it? We said a minute ago, we don't want to be the kind of church where Jesus comes and says, your love is no credit to you. It's just like the love that the world has. Well, if if we don't want to be that kind of church, then what we need is a greater knowledge of God's abundant grace to us. We quote again from that same book, Compelling Community. They say this, Our love isn't proportional to our forgiveness. It's proportional to our understanding of forgiveness. If someone has been forgiven by Christ's supernatural sacrifice at the cross, and yet that person never explores the depth of his sin and the miracle of the atonement, his love will remain tepid. It is impossible to know too much about God and his love for us in Christ. Can we all attest that that's true? Amen. So if you find yourself struggling to love others, this is a likely cause of your weakness. You've not explored the depth of your sin or the greatness of God's forgiving love. That's one thing we should all take away from this sermon, that we should give more of our time and attention to exploring the depths of God's love for us in Christ. When you think about how to use your your times of private worship, your quiet time, devote time to this, to knowing the depths of God's love for you in Christ. Or if you want to know what to do in your family worship, look for ways to teach your children or your spouse about the, the depth of God's love in Christ. If you want to know how to, to talk to other believers, work to have conversations about the depth of God's love in Christ. One of the reasons we exist as a church is to to help each other in this way, to seek together to know more of Christ's love and to help one another to know the love of God in Christ. I think this may be the key to becoming better evangelists. If we have exercised the muscles of helping each other know the love of God in Christ in the church, it'll naturally start to flow out to our other relationships will help others outside of Christ know that they can know Christ and know God's love. So if you look at your life and you see there's, there's none of this 
supernatural kind of love in my life. If you look at your kind of esteem of the world and and you can't imagine loving people who hurt you. You can't imagine doing good to someone who hates you. If you're having those thoughts, it could be that the Lord is waking you up to your need of salvation. So I would encourage you, if you're tempted to despair because you don't have this supernatural kind of love, then look to Christ. Look to the God who is kind to sinners. Look upon Christ who died for your sin. And you can know yourself the amazing love of God through Christ. This is the message that we have all believed who are members of this church. The reward that Jesus speaks of in Luke 6.35 is this prom- these promises of the gospel. We live and we love by faith in the gospel. And yet we have to admit that to us, Jesus' way of talking about all this sounds sort of strange. When we believe in a salvation by grace through faith, you know, why does he speak to us in these commands? Forgive and you will be forgiving. Forgiven sounds a lot like earning salvation. It sounds like Jesus is saying we can earn our way in to be, call, be called sons of God by having the right kind of love. Well, the great French theologian John Calvin says that Jesus does not teach us here that love makes us the children of God, but Jesus speaks in this way to excite us to do what is right. He says our obedience does not save us or earn God's blessings. Instead, he says Christ assures us that this will be a mark of our adoption if we are kind to the unthankful and evil. A modern commentator put it more succinctly, moral likeness to God proves parentage. Our likeness to God proves that he is our father. It's evidence of the faith that we have. And so by faith, we are sons of God, as we hear in John chapter 1. And so because we are sons of God, we should look like our father. With these commands in in chapter 6 of Luke to love, Jesus commands us to live out the reality of who God has made us to be in Christ. You have been made sons. You have been made children of God. So live like it. We are children of God by the mercy of God. Listen again to verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now we always, as Christians, assume fatherhood of God is just kind of baked in. And and that's good. We should assume that. But Jesus has said nothing in the Gospel of Luke about God being our Father till now. He kind of almost slips it in. By the mercy of God, we can call God our Father. He slips in a whole theology that we are adopted as sons, as a blessing of the gospel. God's mercy makes us his children. And it's this that is the foundation for all of these commands of Jesus to love. So it's in light of this that we should read all these commands in verses 37 and 38. Judge not, condemn not. Forgive. These are not cause and effects statements. This is Jesus telling us what life in his kingdom is like. Because of God's forgiveness, because we have been delivered from judgment, because God does not condemn us, we don't finally condemn or judge anyone. Now, I think we can tell by this cluster of words, judge, condemn, forgive, that Jesus is not speaking about using discernment to assess someone's character or their teaching. 
or the, the kind of judgment Jesus is talking about is, is final judgment. The judgment that God exercised when he finally condemns someone to hell. So this is a place where we're not called to imitate God. We're not called to be the final judges of men's hearts. But we are called to imitate God in his liberality and his mercy. There's a blessed circularity to these commands. We judge not because God has not judged us the way we deserve. And so we rejoice in this fact more than anything else. And so we judge not. We forgive others because we have been forgiven by God and we desire his forgiveness more than life itself. And so we live as forgiving people. We know that the forgiveness that God exceeds us is that, that God extends to us exceeds any forgiveness that we've extended to others. It's that pressed in, overflowing kind of forgiveness. And so, as children of God, we should resemble our Father. Our Lord commands us to love as He loves, with kindness to our enemies, with graciousness to the unthankful. Our Lord suffered, it says, entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. You see that? Jesus was able to suffer and love the same way he calls us to, by trusting the one who judges justly. And so we are called to suffer and love the same way. This is costly love. It cost Jesus his life. Many of the disciples who heard these words, they would lay down their own lives too. But by faith in Christ, we can love others in such a way that God's saving love is glorified. We want to love others in such a way that people can look at our love. And they can echo the words of the centurion at the cross, saying, Surely these are children of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help to understand and apply these words of Jesus. We pray that our hearts will be soft and open, that when we're perhaps tempted to, to shut down where Jesus leads, that we would consider our hearts, that we would confess of any hatred or bitterness that we're harboring in our hearts. We pray that you would make us a church where the gospel is the center where we magnify Jesus by the way we care for each other and by the way we love and serve our enemies. We pray that it will be a sign of our adoption that we belong to Christ by the way that we love each other. We ask for these things in Christ's name. Amen.